Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome all over to Product. Today I'm here with Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking. Why don't we kick this off by a little overview of your background and then we'll delve into your book. Sounds great. Thank you for having me, Eric. So my background is I started my first startup right out of our college dorm room in MIT, and that was my foray into entrepreneurship. So, you know, I've learned how to build products by making mistakes. And that first startup was a perfect experience and one that I can talk about where, you know, I made these mistakes. Our startup at the time, this was back in 2000, we set out to revolutionize wireless, right? And tended to be just a very broad vision that was, yeah, it's unclear what it meant to really revolutionize wireless. And the mistakes that we made along the way was that with this lack of focus, we kept switching directions, trying to find product market fit. And what's funny to me is that, you know, this was more than 20 years ago, but this is still kind of how we build products today. So my background, you know, and the overview is that I built products, learned through hard experiences and worked in many different industries. Wireless was just the first one, but after that I've worked in broadcast, media and entertainment, in telecom, even wine. And in fact, the funny thing about my background is that I've never held two consecutive jobs in the same industry. And so The background is, you know, having worked in large companies and small and startups and multinationals, I just kept seeing the same kind of issues pop up over time, which brings me to where I'm today and the book that you talked about, Radical Product Thinking. It came out as a result of all of these experiences and saying, well, how can we build better products? How can we build world-changing products just repeatedly? Yeah, so let's talk about your book, Radical Product Thinking. Why do we need to think about product differently and and why now? Yeah, so the biggest reason is that, you know, we have learned that the way we build products is through iteration. Uh, In the last decade, as Lean Startup came out, as Agile has become just ubiquitous, All of our investment and how we build products, how we build companies has been on how can we iterate faster? And the analogy I like to give is iteration and the ability to iterate fast. It's important. I'm not dismissing it, but it's like having a fast car. To get to your destination, it's helpful to have a fast car, but it's not enough. You can't get to your destination just by having a fast car. You need to be able to navigate to it. You need to know what your end destination is and navigate to it. You know, very often in product, we say, well, let's just ask customers what they want, right? We listen to customers and build what they want. But the analogy I use is asking customers what they want. It's like asking for directions. When you're in your fast car and you're asking for directions, you still need to know where you want to go. Your customers can tell you if you're on the right track or not, but they can't tell you where you need to go. They can't help you set your destination. And that's where the need for this book came about because until now, all of these methodologies that we've had, they've focused on just how we can iterate fast, but there hadn't been something that tells you, well, how can you 
take this vision-driven approach? How can you set the destination and navigate to it better? Like we, there hasn't been this counterpoint to be able to invest in setting the direction and navigating to it that complements our ability to iterate fast. And that was the reason I felt like we needed radical product thinking, this new mindset to be able to complement our ability to iterate fast and have a fast car. And, and why now? Is it because Agile's really changed the velocity of engineering? Is that one of the driving factors? Or why do you think this is particularly important in today's day and age? It's two reasons. First, it is because all of our methodologies they've optimized as far as we can go just with a fast car. We're not going to see better products because, you know, we're going even faster. And if we look at, you know, the rates of failures of startups, right, or of products a decade ago, that's not really changed now. It's not that we're, you know, most startups fail you know, it's hard to build products that get traction. That hasn't fundamentally changed even after all this time. So it's really time to do something different. The second reason was, and, you know, this is, maybe we can get into this in in more detail afterwards, but the second reason was the fact that, you know, the way we're building products, we're really changing the world and affecting people through our products. And when we don't have a clear vision for the change that we want to bring about, we're just trying what works in the market. We create products that have unintended consequences on society. And, you know, we continue to build such products that have unintended consequences. It feels like we really need to take a step back and think about how we're changing the world through our products. You know, every product manager needs to think about that, and which is the second reason why I thought it was very important for us to take this new mindset. Yeah, I think the whole concept of product ethics broadly is something we definitely should discuss. Uh, We'll definitely get back to that because that's a passion of mine as people build products that maybe drive usage for the sake of driving usage, waste time. There's all kinds of things out there that people are building products in. And frankly, you know, we live in the social media days where there's a very divisive society. And a lot of that is probably exacerbated, I guess is a good word, by the way certain products are built. So we'll definitely get back to that. But one of the things I wanted to dig into was this idea of product diseases that you write about. You know, tell me about product diseases and and when and why products go bad. Yeah. So product diseases are, you know, this, this pattern of mistakes that I keep seeing where when we are iteration led, as opposed to being vision driven, we start in our fast car without knowing our destination and how to navigate there. And what happens then is we constantly keep focusing on the short term, just because the short term is what grabs the most of our attention. That's what feels urgent. And so the result of of just driving without this clear destination is where we start to see product diseases. And I'll give you a few examples. You know, I started talking with my example of my first startup. Uh, It was called Lobby 7. And I talk about this in my book. But one of the diseases that I'd caught at Lobby 7 was what I call hero syndrome. Hero syndrome is where we're so focused on the scale of what we're building, on the scale of you know, going big and trying to solve a big problem, having a big impact, et cetera, that we forget to really focus on what is the problem that we're trying to solve in the first place. And so in the example of 
you know, my startup, the way we measured our success was being able to raise venture capital funding, right? And this happens to a lot of startups. In a product, we might measure success by saying, well, you know, I have so many millions of users or this much time is being spent on my product. And we feel like the heroes instead of really thinking about are we solving a problem in the world that really deserves to be solved. Um, so that's one example of hero syndrome. Another really common product disease is pivotitis. Pivotitis is what happens when we keep switching directions, just trying one strategy after another to see what works. And, you know, you can get to a point when you're building a product where even every sprint can feel like a different pivot because your customer is asking for one thing in one sprint, a different customer has different issue. That's the most urgent thing at that time. And so you keep pivoting like this. And maybe I'll share one more product disease that is typically a pet peeve for most product managers. It's when your salesperson comes to you with a glimmer in their eye and they say, you know, if you just add this one feature, we'll be able to win this mega client. And that's obsessive sales disorder. And it sounds mostly harmless when, you know, your salesperson tells you that. So you say, yes, let's do it. You know, it's going to be just this one feature. And pretty much by the end of the financial year, you're sitting with a stack of contracts uh, and your entire roadmap for the next year is driven by all the things that you have to make good on. So that's one that not only have I experienced, but, you know, this is one that I've also contributed to. So that's obsessive sales disorder. But there are seven such diseases that I talk about in the book. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that the sales disorder one, I feel like I saw that a lot, especially in past lives, enterprise companies where, you know, there was always the, oh, it's it's often cloaked under this idea of we're being customer focused, right? We're going to build this because a customer wants it. It's very customer focused. It's customer centric. And how can you argue with being customer centric, right? (laughs) But it often takes you away from, you know, your strategy or something that you feel like is innovative for the product. I saw it a lot more now. Today, it's it's interesting in a lot of startups, you, you see a lot more, I think, of that pivotitis that you described, just because there's been a lot of this, you, you see a lot of successes and a lot of unicorns. And I think a lot of early entrepreneurs think those happen really quick. Like all of a sudden, it's like right away, we knew this company was going to be successful. It was like, boom, boom, boom. And I've talked to a number of startup companies where it's like, two months in and they're like, we don't, we don't have enough traction yet. It's not like accelerating in a hockey stick. We need to pivot. I was like, it's been two months. I mean, come on, you got to let, let things play out a little bit. And, and do you see that kind of mentality today of like, hey, we need to grow so fast that people are just pivoting before they've given strategy enough time to work too? Oh, I love that you bring that up. And both points that you made, right? Let's go back to obsessive sales disorder for a moment. I love what you said. It's under the cloak of being customer driven. And you're exactly right. We often mistake being customer led instead of being customer driven. And that's kind of the mindset that we need to change to that, you know, customers are giving us directions. Once we know where we're going, we can't just, you know, completely follow customers for every kind of whim that they might have. And that's where you catch obsessive sales disorder. But your point on pivotitis, you know, 
There's one example I give of pivotitis often, which is where there was a startup that I was part of and I was heading up marketing and we did exactly what you said. Like, you know, every couple of months it was a pivot, right? And we started off trying to be the next visa of the world. And that meant, you know, you have to both acquire merchants as well as consumers. And that's really hard. And so after a couple of months, we said, oh, you know, this is too hard a problem to solve. We'll become a loyalty solutions provider for merchants. And then after a month or so, we said, oh, you know, that's just a really crowded market. We'll become a credit solutions provider for merchants. But with each pivot, right, at some point, I was so confused. I wasn't sure what I was asking people to sign up for on the website anymore. And it was just equally confusing for both our customers and the merchants that we were trying to sign up for, right? But this point that, you know, we tend to pivot too quickly and use unicorns as an example when I teach this class on innovation at Northeastern, I often ask my students to do this exercise with me. Like, let's talk about whether something is an actual pivot or not. Let's use the example of Slack. That's one of the most often quoted examples of a pivot that worked so well, right? And to me, that's not a pivot actually at all. Slack was a massive online gaming platform, right? Before it became this tool for communication. When it was clear that that was not where the gaming platform was not working, they completely shed their baggage of being a gaming company. And although it was the same team, it was a very small part of that team and they started a new company. So it really was not a pivot. Something very similar with Twitter, you know, that's used as an example. It started off as a podcasting company, but then iTunes came along and, you know, that business model was failing. And so they pivoted to this idea of Twitter. But again, it wasn't a pivot. It was really starting a new company. And so we have to take a moment before we keep pivoting like this and realize two things. One is as a startup or a product company, it doesn't matter. You literally have two to three pivots at the very most, no matter how much money you have, before you run out of money and momentum. And so you have to use those two to three pivots really carefully. If you waste it every couple of months trying different things, you're most likely going to run out of money. The second thing is, even if you think that this is a pivot and you need to move, one of the best things to do is to first talk to your team about what have you learned? Why do you need to pivot? And what is the new vision? The gravitas with which you craft a new vision statement, et cetera, makes you realize that it's not just a matter of, oh, let's just try something else, that you're really making a significant change. And it helps your team understand why you're making this change and helps people bring come with you on this journey. And that's maybe one of the biggest things that we can do to avoid pivotitis. I like that. I like that. Well, now we've talked a little bit about the diseases and I, I know there's more in your book and we can't go through them all. We can't, we can't just read your book to everyone on the podcast, right? Oh, I don't um, mind. I'm happy to like uh, talk about more diseases too. Well, let's, let's jump into how you define radical product thinking in the elements, right? You define five, the first one of which you were just talking about, like in the case of a pivot, redefining your, your mission and your vision statement. So let's start by talking about vision. Yeah, I actually don't draw a distinction between a mission and a vision statement. And the reason for that is, you know, I feel like there is just so much confusion in so many words. Instead of making people remember different vision statements and mission statements and the difference between the two, et cetera, just, you know, like in the Lord of the Rings, we say, you know, one wing to rule them all. Just have one vision statement to really 
get everyone on the same page. My idea of a vision statement is very different. And I challenge conventional wisdom where the idea behind a vision statement is, one, it has to be broad and unchanging. If you're in the startup world, you know, you're asked very often, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal or a BHAG, right? My recommendation is that a good vision statement is not a BHAG at all. A good vision statement is a problem that you're trying to solve in the world that is a problem that you're really inspired to solve to the point where even if you take yourself and your company out of the picture altogether, that's a problem that you would be happy to see solved in the world. And so to me, a good vision statement, and this is what I talk about in the book, answers five questions. It answers the who, what, why, when, and how. So whose world are you trying to change? What does their world look like? Meaning what exactly is their problem and how are they solving it today? The third, and this is probably the most important one to me, is why does it need to be solved? Meaning why is the status quo today unacceptable? And unless we're able to answer why the status quo is absolutely unacceptable, maybe there's no place in the world for our product. Maybe there's no reason for it to exist, right? Then the next question is, well, when will you know that you've arrived? Like, how will you know that you've actually solved this problem? Like, what does the world look like when you're done? And then finally, the last question is, how will you bring that about? And this is finally the point where you can talk about your particular approach or your product or technology or whatever it is that you'll use to bring about that world. So it's the who, what, why, when, and how answers. And to make it much easier to answer these questions, the radical product thinking approach is a fill in the blank statement so that you're not stuck on the words and wordsmithing your vision statement, because otherwise you play what I call vision bingo in an offsite where if we start wordsmithing, we end up with words that sound very similar to the original vision statement that sounded beautiful, but it didn't, you know, maybe get to this level of uh, details in terms of the answers to these profound questions. And so it's a fill-in-the-blank statement that starts with this. So that's what I mean by vision. Awesome. Can you give us a couple examples? Sure. I'll share an example of a startup that I had. Our vision statement would read as follows. So it would say, today when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like, they have to find attractive looking wine bottles or wines that are on sale or promotion. This is unacceptable because it leads to so many disappointments. We envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We're bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. So that was the vision statement for a startup that I had in 2011 and I sold it in 2014. But I think the one thing, you know, that I'd like our listeners to walk away with is I hadn't said very much about my startup at all, but hopefully at the end of that statement, you knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that's the key to a vision statement. Like, you know, every time I say this vision statement, maybe a few words here and there might be different, but the point is not the exact wording. It's really, you get what we were building and why, and that's what you want in your team. You want every person on your team to be able to talk about your shared vision in their own words. And that's what the statement enables. Thanks. I, I think that's a great example. And it also reminds me about pretty labels generally mean pretty bad wine. <laughs> <laughs> so true. 
<laughs> so the, the second thing, you know, second element, second pillar strategy, right? Talk to me about the strategy element of radical product thinking. Yeah. So once you have a good vision statement, the strategy is what helps you convert that vision into a set of actionable steps. And the strategy is where we focus on being customer-driven as opposed to being becoming accidentally customer-led, right, and catching obsessive sales disorder. So there are four questions that the radical product thinking approach to strategy helps you answer. And this is really the key to a comprehensive strategy. And I'll share a quick mnemonic so that it's easy to remember these four questions. The first is R for real pain points. And real pain points is basically where you say, okay, what is it that makes someone engage with your product? What's the pain that makes them come to your product in the first place? The D is for design, which is what's the design or the functionality that solves this problem or that solves this pain for the customer? Um, the third is C for capabilities, meaning what is the capability, the underlying technology or partnerships, etc., that really powers your solution? And then finally, the L for logistics is how do you deliver the solution to your customers? And this is where you talk about your pricing model, your sales channels, your, your strategy, your plan for actually supporting the customer, training them, etc. And so the mnemonic is RDCL, or you can pronounce it radical, so that you answer these four questions in detail. And the reason we came up with these four questions, right, is because when it's it's really hard to intuitively think of these four things comprehensively when you're just working on every sprint, et cetera. So it's helpful to take time apart and just think through your answers to these questions so that your execution and what you actually build in your sprints is driven by these. And I'll give you my own example. You know, very often when we don't do this kind of a comprehensive strategy explicitly, what happens is, especially this L for logistics of thinking about your support strategy, your training plan, and how you will do customer service or actually deliver the solution, et cetera, all of that is often left as an afterthought. Let's just build our product. Let's first get traction. Then we'll figure out how to monetize it, or you know, then we'll figure out how to support it, right? And it's a lot like building a house. When you're building a house, you think about, you know, are you building this house for a young couple or are you building it for a family of four? Based on the answer to that, you might build two very different houses. And so your answers to these four questions are really integral to kind of how you build a product. And what do you, what do you see, like going back to the startup world, specifically around strategy, what do you see most startups getting wrong? Like, what are they missing you know, from this model, from Radical, right? Yeah, very often in a startup world, first, we focus on the solution because we think we have a, we've built some really cool capability. One example I have is a lot of AI startups, you know, you, maybe you've figured out a really interesting algorithm to find patterns, et cetera. And then they go about trying to first build a solution around that. So it starts with capability, then they've built a solution, and then they're trying to fit the solution to what's the pain point? Let me go talk to lots of customers and then see what pain point I can address using these solutions. And so going through this kind of backwards means you end up pivoting from one customer to the next or one solution, one pain point to the next, right? And so 
the order in which we approach things has to be a little bit different, which is that we have to start with what is the real pain point? Because without that, for perhaps there's no reason even for the product to really exist if you can't figure out why someone is coming to your product. So starting with that point and then going through systematically to the rest of the answers. I like it. Well, let's talk a little bit about prioritization because that's one of the elements. Yeah. So to me, please have that in our everyday actions and the vision and strategy is where prioritization or everyday decision-making comes in. You know, I often think of our vision and strategy as the engine for the car, right? And prioritization is where the rubber actually meets the road. That's the tires that actually help you connect that vision to your execution and measurement. And so when you think about how do you prioritize, you know, what we do intuitively as experienced product people is we are balancing long-term against the short-term. So, you know, if you actually explicitly draw this out in an X and Y axis, you can think about your vision as the Y axis, you know, whether something is good for your vision or not. And your X axis, you can think of that as survival. That's the short-term, whether something is helping you survive in the short-term or not. Something that's helping you both with a longer-term vision and your short-term survival, well, of course, that's ideal. Those are the easy decisions. Things that are good for your vision, but it's not helping you short term, that's, of course, investing in the vision. You know, for example, if you're refactoring code for three months, you're investing in the vision. And the opposite of investing in the vision is where it's helping you short term, but it's not good for your longer term vision. This is where, you know, you're taking on what I call vision debt, which is like technical debt, except it's on the vision side, where it's taking you further and further away from your vision. And going back to obsessive sales disorder, right? When we keep taking on vision debt, constantly focusing on the short term, winning those deals, et cetera, that's the quadrant that we keep being in if we're starting to catch obsessive sales disorder. We are just starting to take on more and more of this vision debt. And so the reality is there's no bad quadrant, right? Except maybe the danger quadrant where, of course, it's not a good vision fit and it's not helping you in the short term, but nobody is asking for those danger quadrant features usually. And so these other three quadrants, they're really all okay, but they all depend on kind of what's right for your company at that given point and what's the right balance between the short term and the long term. So as a product person, you're making a lot of these decisions just intuitively, but prioritization and using this explicit discussion of long-term versus short-term trade-offs and bringing your vision into those everyday decisions is how you can communicate that intuition that you've built with your whole team. Because the reality is, you know, and this is what I've said for every product manager that I've trained, you know, our goal is to make ourselves redundant, where Every person on the product team should be able to make decisions like you would, even when you're not in that room, even when you're not next to them. As a software developer, you know, someone's making a decision whether to hard code something or not. There's no right answer for what to hard code. I mean, you can't say it's you should never do that, right? Like there are times where you take on technical debt. But when is the right time to do that? What are those right trade-offs? A lot of those trade-offs people are making on their own. You need to be able to communicate what's that right trade-off? And by using this X and Y axis of vision versus survival, you help people make those trade-offs. And you use this, you know, when you're doing sprint planning so that you bring your vision into your regular sprints. I like that. <laughs> it's interesting. You, you talked about 
vision debt and also, you know, the compulsive sales disorder. And it made me think too about how I like to think about, you know, whether we do something or not, that's a customer request, right? Or a sales request being driven by sales. And that's a question of like, is it part of our overall vision? It might be a quarter or two out, like we might be accelerating something because it's driving a customer deal. And that might be okay. And that's a trade-off decision we can make. But it's the ones that aren't in that overall vision that we got to say no to, you know, even if it means potentially not getting a customer. And the ones that are so far in the future on the vision side of things that it's just a, a distraction uh, are also the ones that we probably want to say not yet to, you know, and see if the, we can sell the customer on the value we have today. I think that's interesting, you know, to apply that those customer requests to this whole concept of vision debt and what it causes you. Exactly. And I love how you described it, right? Those are exactly the discussions that are important to have. And there's no right answer. If you're a startup that's bootstrapping and you're desperate for cash, you know, you may have to take on more of this vision debt and acquiesce to customers asking for things that, you know, only they're going to use. But at least when you have these discussions explicitly with your team and you're taking on customer, you know, if you're taking on vision debt and you recognize it, right, what's helpful for the team is it helps reinforce that your vision, you still believe in it. You recognize that you're taking on vision debt. So it's not a top-down loss of confidence in the vision that, oh, let's just do this. You're being very clear that I don't want to do this in the long term. Here's what we're doing short term. And here's how eventually we want to invest in the vision. And you have to make good on that. But those discussions are really useful and they make taking on vision debt less demoralizing for the team. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, no one in a software company wants to think of themselves as like, it's just a drive-through where customers roll up and say, I want this and I want that. I mean, you end up having this Frankenstein of a product in that kind of environment, you know, even if you do get some of the short-term sales. So part of this all leads to execution and part of execution is measurement. How do you guide people in this radical product thinking paradigm when it comes to execution and measurement? Yeah. So the idea with execution and measurement is that, you know, that's your opportunity to validate whether your vision and strategy are actually working. And so the main point out of that is, you know, creating hypotheses for every single element of your strategy, saying, you know, this is what we believe is the right strategy and here's why we think it is, like here's what we expect as a result, and then using measurement as a way of checking whether this hypothesis is true. And if it's not, then you can go back to your strategy and say, oh, you know what, here's what we learned from our measurement and what we need to do instead. So this is where you have this feedback loop between your execution and measurement and your strategy to say, okay, here's what's changed as a result and what we're going to do differently. But what this really means is that what we measure has to be driven by our vision and strategy. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for our listeners. What happens often is that measurement is based on popular metrics. We measure what's popular, for example, you know, ARR, or we might measure, you know, the time spent on site and the number of active users and so on. And those are all, you know, metrics that exist. But one of the product diseases that I call hypermetricemia is where we measure so much and yet we don't think about whether those are the right metrics that indicate progress for our product and for our vision. And so the right approach to execution and measurement is deriving the right metrics from your vision and strategy based on hypotheses that help you understand whether 
you're on the right track or not, if that strategy is working or not. Yeah, I, I like that you talk about that as what's the right metrics for your company? Because a lot of people you know, think there's some like perfect answer to metrics that's usable by everybody. And then it's not true. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if you look out hundreds of years into the company future, it's going to be revenue and profitability and that, those kind of metrics. But how you get there and how you're successful is picking the right underlying metrics that are going to drive those things. And a lot of that is really company product dependent, right? Exactly. And you know what you mentioned about trying to optimize for revenues and profits, increasingly what we've seen is that companies are more short-term driven and we do end up focusing a lot on short-term revenues and profits. But in the long term, that's not necessarily what makes companies profitable. And so that's not the right metric to optimize for in the short term to begin with. And this is why we it's so important to derive those metrics from your vision and strategy. Yeah, and, and investors are savvy to that too. I mean, even though you know it's really important that you hit your short-term revenue metrics, there's definitely a concept of good and bad revenue. You know, the simplest one might be if you're a software company and your a lot of your revenue is coming from services, that's not good revenue, right? You want that reoccurring, you know, revenue, even if the services engagements were reoccurring, you know, you want to make sure you have that base of software. So I think investors are savvy enough to know that there's underlying metrics that are important, even if there is a short-term push to ARR, right? And those underlying metrics are going to be very specific to your particular company and making sure that you're building something that will continue to grow because it's one thing hitting a quarter's number. It's another thing, making sure you have the the systems in place to hit all of your numbers moving forward and continue to grow. And then that, I think that does emphasize, you know, picking the right metrics and, and what's specific to your company. Exactly. Uh, one example I talk about in the book is uh, General Electric, actually, and they did exactly what you talked about, you know, this example of what's good revenue versus bad revenue. Their goal was to be number one or number two in every market. And to meet short-term revenue goals, one of the things that they did was they leveraged GE capital more and more to the point where at some point the markets recategorized GE from a manufacturing company to a financial company. <laughs> And one of the things that at some point GE Capital made up like 42% of GE's revenues. And, you know, they had started with like GE Capital being only 6% initially, right? And by the time GE Capital was growing to that point, that level of GE's revenues, one of the ways that they were growing GE Capital's revenues was by investing in subprime mortgages. And GE was dealing with the fallout of that until just, you know, a year or two ago even. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's an interesting story looking at the history of how GE has changed over time. Yeah. And by the way, it all started with a vision that was just way too broad, right? Their vision was touted as fantastic for a long time. Their vision used to be being number one or number two in every market. And that sort of a vision kind of really leads you astray because it's just too broad. It's You're not articulating what's the problem that you're solving in any given space. Yeah. So. I think if I was going to think about the elements of product thinking, you know, I would have thought about vision, strategy, prioritization, execution, measurement, those kind of four pillars with execution and measurement being kind of one or one element together. But you also talk about culture and that might be a little bit unexpected for people. Now, we all understand the importance of culture, or at least I think a lot of us do. But the fact of that you think of that as a primary element of product thinking. Talk to me about why culture is 
a primary element of product thinking and why it's so important? Yeah, so I think for all of us, we're building products, not just by ourselves. You know, if we were the only person building that product, the culture element isn't important. But the reality is when we work in a team, whether it's the vision, the strategy, or any of these elements, right, each person needs to buy into it and they're contributing to it. When you create a vision for a team, that vision ends up being translated into each individual's personal vision for how their work is contributing to your, towards what the team is working on. And so the culture element is so important in terms of how we can all gel together and deliver our best work all together. And I found that the whole radical product thinking process of you know, creating the shared vision, strategy, priorities, et cetera, all of these are tools that are designed for communication and bringing the team together so that we can deliver our best work. So it reinforces the idea of creating a good culture and having a good culture helps you do better in each of these elements. But what I realized, you know, in addition to this is that just like a product, culture is also something that we can very systematically engineer. So just like we can build successful products, we can build successful cultures. And it requires the same elements of product thinking, meaning you need a vision for culture. And by the way, that's one of the hardest things for culture because Culture seems like such a nebulous and abstract idea. What does it mean to have a good vision for culture? You know, you can say I want an open culture, transparency, and so on. But what does that actually mean? That's really hard to describe. And so the first thing is developing a clear vision for culture. And this requires a slightly different approach. And I talk about that in the book, and I'm happy to get into this in just a moment. The second thing is then... Once you have a vision for culture, how do you systematically engineer change in the team to be able to bring about that culture? And so doing that systematically means taking this radical product thinking approach. And at the end, you can also measure whether you've executed on your culture effectively. And so maybe I'll talk a little bit about the vision for culture since that's a little bit different. The way I think about culture in our team is culture is the cumulative set of experiences that we go through in our workday. And the way we experience our workday is on two dimensions. I think about our workday as being fulfilling or not. So this is stuff that we're working on that's fulfilling or not. The other dimension is stuff is either urgent or it's not. So if I think about tasks that are fulfilling and not urgent, right? that feels like the most meaningful work. This is where you have mental and emotional bandwidth to be able to think through problems and work on purposeful stuff. So those are meaningful tasks. The second quadrant is what I call heroism. This is stuff that it feels fulfilling, but it feels urgent. So if you're firefighting customer issues, you're happy to have made a customer happy, but you, and, and it adds a little bit of spice to your day to do this uh, firefighting. But if you're doing this all the time, you're engaging in heroism and it's exhausting. The next quadrant is you know work that's not fulfilling, but it feels urgent. So this is the stuff where you know you need to order a new laptop, but you need so much paperwork to get that done. It's like trudging through a field of cactus. It's just painful and slow, right? So if you have to keep getting a lot of consensus on relatively minor decisions from a whole bunch of stakeholders, that feels like organizational cactus. And the last quadrant is the soul-sucking quadrant. This is stuff that is not fulfilling and it's not urgent, but it's like a low-grade fever that's just ongoing. 
And so, you know, if we think about what makes a good culture, the vision for a good culture is one where your meaningful work time is maximized and the time you spend in the other three quadrants is minimized. You'll never find work that, you know, has absolutely zero in the other danger quadrants, but you know, the work that's best that you enjoy the most is stuff where you have the most time in the meaningful work quadrant and less time in the other three quadrants. And then your strategy is about how do you bring about such a workplace where you can maximize meaningful work and reduce the other quadrants. And then your execution is executing on a lot of the hypotheses that you've created in your strategy and then measuring whether that's actually working. I like that. I feel like we could spend a lot of time talking about culture, but we're running out of time. <laughs> so I did want to make sure we got back to product ethics, right? Uh, because you, you put a whole section in your book about product ethics. It's a passion of mine. Why do you include it? To me, I keep seeing the world changing in a way that reminds me of environmental pollution. Just as industrial growth has led to environmental pollution, I see that in the digital era, our carefree growth in the tech industry has led to what I call digital pollution. And there are five main types of digital pollution that I identify in the book, and I'll mention a couple of them. You know, through our products, we often create an increase in wealth inequality just through business practices. Let's think about, you know, Amazon's eroding of worker rights, for example, but the more wealth inequality you have in society, the more it erodes democracy. You talked about ideological polarization through social media. That also erodes democracy. The more polarization we have, it's harder to reach agreement on anything. Another really important one is erosion of privacy. You know, we tend to collect so much data in our products so that we can do better, learn insights, etc. But Every time we erode privacy, we are contributing to surveillance and that erodes democracy as well. And maybe just one last example I'll share is, you know, the misinformation that comes out of products that also erodes democracy because knowledge is what's needed for democracy to thrive. But when we have misinformation, you know, we make it easy to collect lots of information. You just have a very hard time, even if you do research, to tell whether that information is fact or fiction. And so in creating products, it's important to not just have the superpower to build successful products that make us a lot of money. And taking this vision-driven approach helps you do that. But it's important to think about the responsibility that comes with building successful products. And this is why I wanted to talk about the ethics and help us first recognize the forms of digital pollution that our products may be inadvertently just um, contributing to, and then also start to see how can we do better. Yeah, I, I think that's a good overview. I think we need another hour to, to <laughs> sit down and, and go through a lot of those things you touched on, like how we can do this better, right? How product managers, how product leaders should think about this differently, you know, how we should approach misinformation, why it's such a big problem, you know, what we do about this polarization impact on social media. There's a lot of things there. Like, how can we build better social media companies that that whose algorithms don't seem to amplify polarization, right? And maybe that's a good way to talk about it. I feel like we have another hour there. That'll be for <laughs> another day. Why don't, why don't we wrap up today by uh, talking about what your current favorite product is? What is it? Okay, so I'll, I'll first talk about my definition of product. My definition of product is your mechanism to bring change in the world. 
So really anything can be a product if you have a clear vision for what's the change you want to bring about, whether it's activism or, you know, a nonprofit government, uh, any of these can be your products. So at the moment, my favorite product is the country of Singapore. I describe in the book why Singapore was engineered like a country. Aside from the fact that it's a tropical paradise, I love how well it was organized and how well it was engineered. And so at the moment, I would describe that as my favorite product. Even though wine's expensive. (laughs) Even though wine is expensive in Singapore, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, being a wine lover like you are, I assume, since you uh, had a wine company, you know, that that is one downside to your favorite product. It's it's rather, uh, rather pricey. That is true. There are definitely other downsides. The food there is amazing. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I've I've heard that. Well, a final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. That is definitely the hardest question of the day, but let me have a try. Uh, Three words. So one is a compound word, uh, vision-driven. And I feel like in the book, I had a clear vision for the change that I wanted to bring about. It was getting us to think about building uh, products differently and changing how we build products. The second is, I guess I'll say, determined. I am persistent in what I do. And third is probably thoughtful. I think this was this is one word that took me some time to embrace because being thoughtful is often not embraced in the startup world for sure, but even in industry. And I think that's really important for us to be as product people. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been a blast. And your book, Radical Product Thinking, it's out when? It's out on September 28th. And, you know, as people read the book and have thoughts, etc., please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would love to connect. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me.